Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Monday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up, the U.S. Supreme Court will hear arguments next term regarding a Mississippi law that bans most abortions after 15 weeks. We'll begin a series of conversations examining what's different about this challenge to Roe v. Wade. What the ruling will be is that it is a state's rights issues and that each individual state can make a determination as to whether or not they want to ban abortion altogether or not. Today's guest is Georgia Democratic Senator Jen Jordan. That conversation and more on today's program. But first, from our WABE newsroom, Georgia House Speaker David Rostin says lawmakers will hold hearings this summer to discuss possible solutions to the crime spike here in Atlanta. In speaking with Morning Edition's Lisa Ram, Rostin says it might be time for the city and state to work together on the pressing problem. When asked about his theory behind the increase in violent crimes, Rostin offered this. Uh, there's too many uh, young people involved in, in, in the commission of these crimes. I suspect that drugs uh, are behind much of this also. Closer Look reached out to APD for a statement in response to Speaker Rostin's comments. Rostin says hearings headed up by the House Committee on Public Safety and Homeland Security will take place now until the start of the next legislative session. Meanwhile, Atlanta City Council President Felicia Moore has asked APD Police Chief Rodney Bryant to attend today's City Council meeting to talk about the escalating violence. That meeting is currently underway during this time. And finally, Julio Jones is now with the Tennessee Titans. The Atlanta Falcons traded the star wide receiver for two future draft picks over the weekend. Jones holds several of the team's all-time receiving records, but missed nearly half of the last season because of injury. Closer Look continues after this. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. Voting rights groups, civil rights groups, and the ACLU have all come together against the legislation signed into law by Governor Brian Kemp earlier this year. Of course, it was Senate Bill 202. The law, from their viewpoint, disenfranchises minority voters by requiring additional voting identification for early voting, places restrictions on advanced and weekend voting, limits drop boxes, and prohibits Georgia counties from accepting grant funding, among other changes. And lawsuits have been filed. But supporters of the law say it would prevent voter fraud and ensure voter confidence. Governor Brian Kemp has repeatedly said of the law, it's easier to vote and harder to cheat. Dr. Bernard Thomas is an associate professor of political science at Valdosta State University, and he recently wrote a piece that was published in The Conversation. That's an independent nonprofit news organization about Georgia's new controversial voting law. And while he believes the law may not change election outcomes... For now, the title, 
Georgia voter suppression efforts may not change election results much. Professor Thomas joins me now. Welcome to the program. Oh, thank you very much. You have extensive research in political parties, electoral systems, and research methodology. And I'm curious, though, what do you make of the number of state legislatures that already passed more than 20 laws this year alone? Well, let's begin by saying that that the intent of the law, at least one of the intentions, is in fact voter suppression. There is, there's no doubt about the fact that the idea behind it or the goal behind it is in order to keep people who would uh, support the Democratic Party to be less likely to vote. So the idea is to increase the cost of voting, making it harder and hoping that it would be enough in order to to shave off votes in order to swing elections. In other words, right now, in all the states that you look, at least the main states you're looking at, Mm -hmm. these are states that are taking lots of different steps to try to protect their position, their control over it. And that control looks like it's slowly slipping away. And so they're taking various steps probably the most famous and effective is gerrymandering, but also includes voter suppression. I don't think you can look at these laws and interpret them any other way. Mm-hmm. They're so kind of obvious, uh, maybe not as blatant as other types of voter suppression laws, but it's obvious because I don't see how you could find any other explanation for them other than them being voter suppression. The other thing is it's also intended, it seems to be a signal to uh, Trump supporters that that you know they're, they're going along with what is now commonly and correctly referred to as the big lie that Donald Trump had actually won the election and that now somehow they're going to fix things so that this doesn't happen again. So these are basically the two reasons for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is a serious matter. It's that the voting should be easy uh, and and states, some states are making it so that it's not so easy for certain groups in the population. And we should note, because we've been checking in with the Brennan Center for Justice in New York, and overall, lawmakers have introduced at least, listen to this number, 389 what they call restrictive bills in 48 states this year during legislative sessions, which includes either pre-filed or carried over. And the Brennan Center professor uses 2011 as sort of this benchmark for the last time this wave of these restrictive laws were enacted. Of course, that came right after the 2010 midterm elections, which were disaster results for the Democrats in the state houses. Going back to that time, you see the same similarities in terms of why Republican, and these are Republican-led state houses, are doing this. There are some similarities there because of who was elected in the previous presidential election. Yes. I mean, that's a that's a big part of it. I mean, the a lot of this was set off from from uh, Obama winning the presidency. 2010 wound up being a kind of a disastrous year for the Democrats. But this is also part of a long term strategy within the Republican Party, the kind of the Karl Rove strategy of 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 doing any steps possible in order to win power. And so and even that you can trace it back to to Newt Gingrich 
lots of steps in order to and taking steps that the Democrats were not even aware that was going on. It was it's not that it's any more clever than anything the Democrats did. It's just going farther than than anyone would have expected. So what you're seeing is a long term pattern of the Republicans taking steps that would uh, tilt elections in their favor. I mean, if we were, were talking about other aspects of this, we'd, you'd see that, that the elections are severely biased in the Republican Party favor. And when I say bias, we, we mean this in the very statistical sense. The Republicans can win all kinds of levels of office with fewer votes than Democrats. Democrats actually have to outperform Republicans consistently and repeatedly in order in order to win. Some of that just happens. Some of it's just that's demographics, but some of it's by design. So so it's, it's a part of what's going on, as you're saying, is it's is a reaction to 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 Obama having won the presidency, but but it's also part of a long term strategy that's going on. So we're kind of seeing with these 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 new voter laws yet another step in the same direction. In dissecting Georgia's new voting law, and I know that you have read through it, and there's quite a bit packed into it. But you write, based on your research, that these provisions, and I'm going to quote you here, may not change election results much, if at all. So someone listening says, well, Professor, you have laid it out. This is your area of expertise. You've laid it out how this pattern has unfolded. But you say, well, slow down. It may not change election results much. So I'm going to allow you to take that further. Okay. Well, one way of looking at it is that there are different kinds of voter suppression laws. And, and we can distinguish, let's say, between, between two major types. One of them you could see as banning voters. In other words, they're the kind of laws that say, if you're in this particular group, you can't vote. You know, the old grandfather uh, clauses are examples of this. And then what they have around the country, the, the felon laws, you get picked up for something minor at some point, but then next thing you know, you can't vote for the rest of your life. These, these are, this is one category. And there's a little bit of that in these laws in the, in the current phases of things. But the major things that we're seeing is that the, these voting laws are trying to increase what we're calling the cost of voting. They're making voting more difficult. So in other words, now you, know, you have to go out and get an ID if you don't have one if you want to vote. You have to put extra effort if you want to do an absentee ballot, if you're even allowed to do an absentee ballot. The voting polling places, hours are restricted. It's harder to get to a drop box. And of course, everyone's personal favorite from Georgia, no one's allowed to hand you uh, water if you happen to be standing in line for hours on end. Now, again, how what possible point could this have other than to make voting more difficult? As I see the research on this showing, and I think I do think it's pretty clear, is that there's probably some amount of effect of increasing the cost for voting, but not as much as one would imagine. That voters tend to be resilient, especially in bigger races like presidential races. So what will happen is uh, that you increase, you make it harder for them. Okay, instead of uh, waiting 15 minutes, you wait for three hours. Now, I'll be clear, I've never waited for more than maybe 15 minutes to vote. But as we well know, you know, in Atlanta, other places, it's not uncommon for now these days for people to wait for hours and end. 
And as it turns out, lots and lots of voters wait for hours on end. What happens is it turns out that these cost of voting uh, measures, from what we can tell statistically, have a small impact, but they're not a huge impact. They have, they, they shave off. The most that they do is they shave off some votes. And, and what I found really interesting about this is, is that is watching many political scientists who are very good statisticians having to put real effort into trying to measure what the impact of these things are. To give a comparison, nobody has to have good statistics to figure out the impact of gerrymandering right now. Well, but on this, we- well, What we, metrics do you use then? Because someone says, okay, well, Professor, let's go back then to that 2011, to the last wave of restrictive voting laws. Have folks like you been able to assess and what metrics did you use to see if it indeed changed any election results? Is it just well, simple as saying, well, Democrats didn't win this and Republicans won that? Or is it a little bit more- Involved. A little bit more. I mean, I think that in terms of those who are doing this part of the research, um, one of the most interesting things is where they're where they're decided to start just simply adding up the costs. They refer to it as the cost of elections. And once you add it all up, then they started finding, OK, there's some amount of results in terms of turnout. So we're not even even talking now about elections being overturned. We're talking about some shaving off of of turnout. So there is some small amount of impact of, of these kinds of laws. Now, here's the interesting thing about it, or one of the ways of looking at this, and that is, why is it that they're producing voter suppression laws that are not having all that much of an impact? And the answer is, it's probably the only choice that they have at the moment. Because if you go back to, to the Jim Crow era where you had these kind of over-the-top um, uh, voter suppression laws and people were basically accepting it, then what happened is with the challenge by the civil rights movement, what they accomplished was to undermine the legitimacy of these type of voting uh, suppression laws. So they made it so that it started becoming much harder to get away with it. And because it's harder to get away with it, what they're doing then is they're trying to find the sneakiest ways possible they can to get away with creating voter suppression. It turns out that sneaky approach is not nearly as effective as kind of over the top type of, of voter suppression. And by the way, this is also why the reaction of, 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 of voting rights groups and the Democratic Party where is, is so important because that negative reaction is exactly what keeps these voter suppression laws from being effective. If they take steps like changing the hours of, of polling places and then there's wide outrage, it makes it much harder to do something much more serious that could really uh, affect voting outcomes. If you're just joining us, I'm in conversation with Dr. Bernard Thomas, Associate Professor of Political Science at Valdosta State University. And we're talking about Georgia's most recent voter law, controversial voter law signed by Governor Brian Kemp earlier this year. 
I want to talk about something else that you wrote in your piece. You write, quote, permitting most citizens to vote by absentee ballot does not give either party an electoral advantage. Now, even though we know here in Georgia, early voting and absentee ballot voting weighed heavily in the Democrats' favor. Someone reading that may say, well, is that not an indicator of one party with an electoral advantage, particularly if, for example, well, here in Georgia, Biden won? Um, I think it gave absentee ballots gave an advantage to Democrats in this last election during the pandemic. That's so in other words, the long term impact of absentee ballots don't seem to be there. They don't seem to produce a lot of impact at all. And to the degree that they help uh, turn out the long-term trend is it doesn't seem to be that big of a benefit for, for the Democratic Party. I mean, that, I think the thing with Georgia, again, is, is, is supporters of the Democratic Party were much more nervous about going and standing in long lines and especially inside of buildings. And so they, they shifted to absentee ballot. Now, you, it could be, we don't know what the future will bring. Mm-hmm. It could be now that the Democrats have have tried it and have said, wow, this is the greatest thing ever. I don't ever want to wait to, to vote again. I think I'll mail it in from now on. It could be in the future that it does. So but we now can't it's tell something, that. But Professor, now it's something like if your state is ending no excuse absentee ballot, then wouldn't that also could that also play out? It could, but but uh, some of the best research on this is is showing that it doesn't seem to have uh, that much of an impact. And again, most of this that that was done uh, has w- occurred before this last election. So now, again, I don't see any reason why there shouldn't be absentee ballot or absentee voting. To me, it makes complete sense. Uh, there's there's no evidence of voter fraud. This is this is an imagined problem. I mean, you always have to be concerned about groups that are are trying to solve a problem that doesn't actually exist, because that usually means they're trying to do something else. Uh, so, so it seems to me that you know, to me, it seems that voting should be absolutely as easy as possible. But because of you know, there's there's a reverse version of this too, which is kind of interesting, which is that making voting easy also doesn't necessarily increase voter turnout either. You know, we had thought back in the 90s that we we do motor voter where people can register much easier than they used to. And a number of other things to make things easier would increase turnout levels. And they actually didn't. So this this kind of goes both ways uh, on this issue. Professor, before we end our conversation, I do want to talk about because you brought it up redistricting and how that leads to gerrymandering. Folks, that- uh, can I make one quick point though before before we do that? Then that's that. As if my point is right now that that it's unlikely to have have an impact. Um, there's an opposite side to this that if voter suppression did get more severe and serious, then that starts becoming a much different uh, ball game. That that if you had voter suppression laws that actually were effective, that actually kept people off of from showing up to the polls. You start shaving off 1%, 2%, 3% of the vote. 
at that point, you could start seeing a, a cascade of elections going to the Republican side that they wouldn't have won otherwise. So in other words, my research doesn't say voter suppression laws don't matter. I'm saying voter suppression laws at the moment don't <laughs> matter. But if they found ways of doing things like, let's say, what Florida did, where they, they threw a bunch of people off the, the uh, voting rolls in, in 2000, okay, then you could have a devastating effect. So it's like a curve. Right now, I think, based on what I'm seeing, we are at the very much at the low end of the curve where, where it's not an immediate threat. But the threat is if they take steps that are are more severe, more serious, then what you could have are, are elections, really serious damage to the American, uh, to American democracy, which is why these laws have to be fought now while they're still weak. So to keep them from actually being uh, much more dangerous. Okay, thank you on that. Let's talk about then redistricting and leading and that leading to gerrymandering. You've done extensive research in that. What do you make of how these laws and what the approach is from these Republican-led state houses? Could we see that here too? I, I think you should expect a significant amount of, of gerrymandering uh, in both Democratic and Republican-controlled states. I think my guess is it's going to get even worse than it has been before. And the reason is because it's kind of an ex escalating war. And, and on top of that, the Supreme Court has made clear that they have no intention of doing anything about it. And so you would imagine it. Obviously, the other factor is, is also just where people live. Democrats now live much more in, in or concentrated in urban areas. So it makes it a lot easier also to gerrymander them. But if I could swing this back to voter suppression, here becomes another thing that's an, an interesting aside to this, that voter suppression actually uh, and gerrymandering work against each other. In other words, the more you gerrymander the districts, the less voter suppression will work in them. And the reason is, and we'll, we'll take the case of Republican, a Republican-controlled state. If a Republican-controlled state is gerrymandering, what they're doing is they're packing as many Democrats as they can into a small number of districts. That makes the margin of victory high. The Democrats start winning by 60%, 70%, whatever. You're not going to shave off enough votes in order to, to even win those districts. So what that means is that the only places where, vo uh, where, where voter suppression might work in Georgia are the statewide races. And the reason why it's going to be hard to make it work from the statewide races, besides it being a larger population, uh, is that these are the high exposure, heavily focused on races where people are more likely to show up regardless. I fully expect the next uh, gubernatorial election to be very high stakes and very intense in Georgia. I think the next presidential election will be high stakes. And so what that suggests is that these other factors are going to overwhelm anything that, that they're producing right now in terms of gerrymandering. Yes, 2022 will definitely be, as you put it, high stakes election year. Good conversation. Dr. Bernard Thomas is an associate professor of political science at Valdosta State University. Professor, thank you so much for taking the time. I enjoyed the conversation. I enjoyed it very much too. Thank you very much. Have a great day. 
Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Last month, the nation's high court agreed to hear arguments regarding a controversial Mississippi law that bans most abortions after 15 weeks. The Fifth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals blocked the law from taking effect. The reason? It conflicted with Roe v. Wade, which the U.S. Supreme Court in 1973 ruled a woman's constitutional right to an abortion and has reaffirmed in subsequent decisions. But there's a lot of talk about this Mississippi law. Could this law be the measure that overturns Roe v. Wade? And what about here in Georgia? There's a lot to unpack. And joining me now is Georgia Democratic Senator Jen Jordan, who's also a lawyer. Senator Jordan, thanks for taking the time. Welcome back to the program. Thank you for having me. It's an important topic. So once again, Roe v. Wade is center stage. And, and whether or not states trying to pass these related laws are unconstitutional, again, is at the core of this. Were you surprised the high court agreed to review this case involving this Mississippi abortion law? You know, I was surprised as, and I wasn't. Um, I'll tell you, they've had it for a while. They had it, I think they, it went up to the Supreme Court maybe in November, October or November of last year. And so it's been just sitting on their docket without them doing anything. But the thing that changed is the fact that um, Justice Amy Coney Barrett was confirmed and has now taken um, her place on the court. And so I think that's actually why they accepted cert on it. And people should be really concerned because, as you were saying, with respect to the law, it's pretty settled. I mean, Roe v. Wade and the cases that came after it were, were pretty clear in terms of what the lines were with respect to what states could do. There wasn't, nobody was fighting over what that law was in terms of the federal courts. Mm -hmm. And so, so there isn't a conflict with respect to the various circuits, which is usually what the Supreme Court does. They'll, they'll kind of settle an argument between various circuits. There wasn't an argument. There wasn't anything that was in dispute with respect to the law. So the fact that they granted cert indicates that they want to change the law. So when we think about whether or not there's anything different about this Mississippi law that you feel could finally be a, an argument that sways the U.S. Supreme Court, but really you're telling me the court by numbers weighs on the conservative side, six to three conservative supermajority. That's right. it. It's a, it and, that's, and, and you've hit it on the head. It's really a supermajority at this point. The last abortion case that the Supreme Court um, took up, actually Justice Roberts sided with um, what is considered the progressive side of the court and, um, and, and kind of kept the status quo, kept the law as it is. Um, now that Coney Barrett is on the court, basically Justice Roberts can't make a difference. And so even if he sides with the progressive side of the court because they have a supermajority, um, the, the conservatives really can, um, can change the law altogether and the landscape with respect to choice and reproductive rights for women. Does it matter, you think, that with this Mississippi case, which is Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization, 
prohibiting against abortion bans before what they call fetal viability, which depending on whom you ask, you'll get a different definition. I'm going to ask you, Senator Jordan, how do you define fetal viability? So I think you're right. I think that it depends on who you ask in terms of, of what that line is. And um, the medical field has one idea in terms of what they think fetal li- viability is. Um, and, and the law kind of has another. So in terms of fetal viability, I think I just always go back to kind of what Roe v. Wade laid out and, and going back to healthcare um, providers to, to give us input on when that is. Um, but really what it comes down to is when, when, um, when a fetus, when you, know, when you can have a child that can live outside of the womb. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I can tell you that a 15 week old pregnancy, a 15 week old uh, fetus cannot live outside of the womb. And so, you know, when you think about it that way, it, it makes it a little bit easier for kind of um, for people on the ground that aren't medical professionals to understand where the line in the sand is. When we look at here in Georgia, and I know, I believe it was, it might've been Texas, some state legislatures like in Texas already are looking at what they call a trigger law which is a law that would be enacted based on what the Supreme Court ruling would be. And if you are in belief that this would somehow overturn Roe v. Wade, states are setting themselves up to have this state law that could either outright ban abortions. How do you see that? So we've actually had trigger laws, um, bills filed. And one specifically was filed the same year that uh, we, that the Republicans pushed through Um, HB 481 with the the heartbeat bill. Mm -hmm. And to be quite frank, what what I thought was going to happen was that the trigger bill was going to get passed, not not the the heartbeat bill. Mm -hmm. Um, So in terms of the strategy they took, they they pushed a law that they knew was unconstitutional and that would get stopped versus doing um, the trigger law. Um, I'll be interested to see if they're going to push that again. especially in light of the fact that uh, the HB 481 stuff is held up in the courts and, and never really went into effect. Um, but I'm not sure. I mean, trigger laws are interesting because um, I, I would be interested in if they, they were enforceable. I mean, I think that the idea is that if the Supreme Court, for, for your listeners, if the Supreme Court were to say that Roe v. Wade is no longer the law of the land or no longer the rule, um, then that would trigger a prohibition against abortion in Georgia. Um, and it's that simple, but, but I'm not sure you can do that. And um, because really you have to have a state legislature pass at the time what would be a constitutional measure. And um, so while it's, it seems kind of cute or, or maybe kind of savvy or strategic, um, at the end of the day, I'm not sure it's enforceable. If you're just joining us, I'm in conversation with Georgia Democratic Senator Jen Jordan, and we're talking about the U.S. Supreme Court agreeing to hear arguments regarding a controversial Mississippi law that bans most abortions after 15 weeks. With this particular Mississippi case, is it enough to just point out that there have been subsequent decisions reaffirming the 1973 ruling? You know, I don't think it is. Um, I think 
Look, I think one of the biggest things for the Supreme Court and one of the things that Justice Roberts has always kind of um, hung his hat on was stability mm -hmm. and legitimacy of the court. And if the people believe that the law can just flip back and forth based on you know, whomever is on the court, that really undermines the legitimacy in people's belief in the law and the rule of law. And that's important. And I think we've, we've seen how important it is in terms of the last few years um, with respect to how the Trump administration treated the law and treated the institutions. Um, but I'm not sure if that's enough. Mm -hmm. Well, we've it's been the law of the land, Rose. I mean, since I've been born, I have never, I have, I have not existed in this world um, without having, you know, the ability to make decisions for me and my family and myself with, with respect to my own reproductive health. And it's pretty stunning to think that that could all just go away um, just because of somebody's choice of someone on the Supreme Court. Might the Supreme Court not make a ruling and kick it back to one of the lower courts? We need to leave this up to states. And especially because there is a federal measure already in place. Right. So what they will do is, if they overturn Roe v. Wade, it isn't that they're going to say there's an affirmative prohibition nationally. That's not what the ruling will be. What the ruling will be is that it is a state's rights issues and that each individual state can make a determination as to whether or not they want to ban abortion altogether um, or not. And so what would happen is, is that then every state in the union would then have a different law with respect to, um, you know, women's rights. And you can see how you would have a crazy patchwork in terms of um, it's legal in Illinois and it's completely prohibited in Georgia. Mm -hmm. um, and it really is unworkable in a lot of ways. And so that's why I think people really need to be paying attention at the state level because I think we're gonna see more and more of this where the Supreme Court is just gonna say, you know what, it's, it's a state's rights issue and the states can do what they want. So of course then whoever is governing in the state really is gonna have an impact on people's lives and their rights um, and if they're vindicated or not. Through your lens, 2022, huge election year, not just here obviously in, in Georgia, but throughout the nation. Yeah, no, I think it is. I think it absolutely is. I think, look, I think what what Democrats saw um, is after the election of Senators Ossoff and Warnock, we have seen the impact, the real impact that has had in terms of the decisions that have been made in DC um, and how like COVID relief funds, vaccination, whatever it is, how that's really had a positive impact on our lives. Mm -hmm. And I think we need to continue to understand that in 22, um, what's at stake is even going to be more significant because you are talking about people's rights. We're talking about voting rights. We're talking about um, women's rights, um, autonomy, all of these things that are just foundational in terms of our democracy and in terms of the constitution. And all of that stuff is going to be coming back down to the states um, to make calls on. And so whomever is in office or whomever comes out victorious in 22, they're the people that are gonna be making these calls. And folks need to understand that because there are some really serious consequences um, to, to whomever those people 
are going to be at the end of the day. Georgia Democratic Senator Jen Jordan was also a lawyer. We've been talking about the Mississippi law that bans most abortions after 15 weeks. The nation's high court has agreed to hear the case, hear arguments in the case. And this conversation kicks off a series of conversations examining what's different about this challenge to Roe v. Wade. And we've invited other guests with different viewpoints to appear on the program. Senator Jordan, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Russ. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. $1.4 million. That's the cost of a state-of-the-art youth farm being developed in DeKalb County. Now, it's called the Education Market Botanicals Agricultural and Recreational Center, or Embark Community Youth Farm, and will be located in Lithonia at the former 58-acre Bransbury Outdoor YMCA at Rock Chapel site. Once it's completed, the farm is expected to provide more than just food. And joining me now with more is DeKalb County Commissioner Lorraine Cochran Johnson. Commissioner, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. It's always a pleasure to be here. Always a pleasure to see you. So um, I'm excited. Before we get into the farm, I do want to get your thoughts on so much is being made, not only just, well, particularly here in Atlanta, but I imagine maybe in DeKalb County, and that is having enough for youth to do, to participate in, whether it's youth employment programs in the summer. Here in the Atlanta area, city council is trying to come up with some innovative ways to to prevent what they call the water boys and girls from selling water and, and trying to come up with different programs to help them. In DeKalb County, are you all seeing the need for just overall more programs for youth to be involved in when they're not in school? Absolutely. And the Embark Youth Farm is what I consider to be a response to that need. Um, During travels, I passed an exit ramp and there were water boys approaching vehicles. And uh, it's one thing to pass legislation, um, of course, in ops and various other committees uh, that affect individuals, but it's another thing to give them options. And what I find with our youth is is they plain and simply don't have enough meaningful opportunities. Um, Mm -hmm. These are young people that are in need of of money, in need of resources. Uh, So I'm I'm very excited that the Embark Youth Farm, it actually incorporates the junior achievement model Mm -hmm. so that student participants will actually receive compensation for the time that they spend on the youth farm literally gaining not only education, but having meaningful opportunities and developing their soft skills. Well, let's start with the backstory. How did the idea, the concept of the youth farm come about? Well, I am from LA, um, lower Alabama, and I have been exposed to farming and agriculture all of my life. I happen to be the commissioner here in DeKalb County who led the charge for the moratorium against dollar stores. Mm -hmm. Now for all legal intents and purposes, we defined not dollar stores, but box stores based Mm -hmm. upon their size and characteristics. But it was during that research that it became very apparent to me that several areas within my district were food deserts. 
where there were food insecurities and individuals plain and simply didn't have access to fresh fruit and vegetables. So as I did the research and, and we were successful in, in instituting the moratorium, I then began to look at how to solve the issues that surround food. Uh, I also realized that a large part of the insecurities deal with a lack of education and knowledge. So it was through a, a culmination of things, um, the dollar store moratorium, the need for access to fresh fruits and vegetables. And honestly, that particular piece of land being a prime location uh, that the birth of the youth farm took place. Let's back up for a moment because this 50 acre Bransby outdoor YMCA at Rock Chapel site, was it just closed? Was just nothing happening? And who owned it? It was owned by the county. And of course, in our quest to provide meaningful opportunities to youth and community, uh, the YMCA had operated that piece of land. Mm -hmm. And we just literally um, had a rescission of the agreement because they had actually aborted um, that opportunity several years ago. So the land was just sitting dormant and it's actually 58 acres. And on that land, currently, it was just ideal. Um, there is a rock climbing center. Mm -hmm. There is zip lining available. It has DeKalb County's largest swimming pool and our only wheelchair accessible swimming pool. And also it has DeKalb County's largest pavilion. That's literally um, half the size of a football field. So it's under that pavilion on a weekly basis once the framework is constructed that local growers and farmers will come out and actually sell produce at market each Saturday. So it was literally an ideal piece of land. Now, let me ask you this. Was there any other model for this? Are you all building this from scratch, so to speak? We're, we're building this from scratch. Now, there was a lot of empirical research that went into it. Um, and I must thank um, architect Herman Howard and the entire um, department from Georgia Tech for their contributions because they have been instrumental. But we literally began to look at um, farms across the United States, how they operated, um, how now more than ever people seek to engage the youth uh, because as we become more technologically inclined, children aren't leaving the home uh, anymore. So creating ways to engage them, get them outside, uh, create an oasis that is all encompassing because we'll actually have kayaking that takes place out there. Um, in addition, we'll have a state-of-the-art greenhouse, 164 raised gardening beds. We're also building a country store. So as produce and goods are harvested, we carry it inside, we can sell um, a variety of products. Uh, and also I have to acknowledge an organization called PAL, Partners in Action for Healthy Living. And it was really through that organization and conversation because these were children that were already cultivating 11 different gardens throughout DeKalb County. And I just felt it was time that they had had a home. So I hope once we're done, there will be a national model for doing what we're doing. If you're just joining us, this is Closer Look, and I'm Rose Scott, and I'm in conversation with DeKalb County Commissioner Lorraine Cochran-Johnson, and we're talking about what's called a state-of-the-art youth farm 
currently under construction in DeKalb County called the Embark Community Youth Forum, which stands for Education, Market, Botanicals, Agriculture, and Recreational Center, will be located in Lithonia. And you all have already broken ground on the Embark Community Youth Forum, but this is going to be in phases, correct? That is correct. Um, We are actually developing the youth farm in three different phases. Let's talk about the kids for a moment, because what's the age group? Is it any young person in DeKalb County? Do they have to be through DeKalb County Public Schools? Who will be able to, once this is completed, participate and be a part of this? Um, Youth of all ages can participate. We will actually have an interactive bee farm where children will be able to walk in. You'll be able to see the bees in their natural habitat through glass slide windows. But additionally, we'll harvest that honey and we will sell honey on site. Uh, We will have an actual hen house. And of course, we will sell what's called happy eggs. Our eggs are harvested within 48 hours of the sale. So it'll give children an opportunity to be interactive with nature and as well as animals in a way that's unprecedented. But for the actual operation of the youth farm, that's Mm -hmm. where you must be an eighth grader or higher in order to actually hold hold hours on site Mm -hmm. and actually work for compensation. And what about the staff? The staff will actually be managed by DeKalb County Parks and Recreation Department. I'm very proud to say that I funded DeKalb County's first park naturalist Mm -hmm. on the south side of DeKalb County, Georgia. Now, the park naturalist will be specifically charged with working with our local schools to schedule educational visits to the youth farm, um, to ensure that there are engaging opportunities at the youth farm, and also for programmatic scheduling. Mm-hmm. Um, I did say that we will have an, an actual um, build out of a country store and the store is just killer. I mean, it has dock doors that roll up so you can let in nature and people can be interactive and how it's constructed. They're two separate, but yet intertwined buildings. Mm-hmm. The architecture of it is amazing and it's all natural wood out there. So. With the test kitchen, it allows children to actually cook. So I'm, I'm just very excited about all the different components and how they come together. I want to go back to the architecture for a moment because I understand Georgia Tech students were instrumental in designing this. That is correct. Uh, and when I say to you, um, you know, if you really want to, to, to develop something that's unique, uh, young people, young, bright minds, we have literally, you know, you, you sort of began this segment with indicating it's a $1.4 million investment, but through their ability to identify resources, and I must acknowledge the Candida Fund, um, which is the one of our premier nonprofits, uh, they actually built the Sustainable um, Institute on the campus of Georgia Tech, and a lot of product was left over. So in the midst of us being in a pandemic with the cost of of lumber and supplies being astronomical, we were able to literally just send DeKalb County over and pick up truckloads of wood. So we are starting in a wonderful position. So you're probably looking more at about a, a $2 million project, but we've just been blessed with resources. Commissioner Cochran Johnson, you of all folks know that when it comes to 
financing. I mean, and at the county level, you all have a budget. How will you all continue to fund this? Well, and I'm very excited to say this, and I hope other elected officials are listening. Here in DeKalb County, we have a hotel motel fund. And through those dollars that are paid directly into that fund, those dollars can be used um, for a variety of projects. Um, But primarily, they must focus on tourism. So because what we are creating will be a tourist destination, Mm -hmm. this project will continue to be funded through our hotel motel dollars on an annual basis. Here comes a fun question. When's the big ribbon cutting ceremony to officially open Embark Community Youth Forum? Um, It will actually be in the spring of 2022. Uh, By that time, we will have built out all of our greenhouses, our raised platforms, um, the actual um, country store will be on site, the hen house, as well as the bee farm. So that is round one, as well as the uh, pavilion. So we can actually start the farmer's market in the spring. So I'm excited. You're going to have a state-of-the-art hen house because we have to protect our hens from predators. (laughs) And when I tell you, when you see the design of that hen house, I'll send you over. Uh, We're going to have some happy hens up in there. There's been no stone left unturned. How often are you driving by or just popping up just to look at how all this is developing? Um, I've been going by each week. Um, It's a little ride from my home, um, probably about five, you know, miles, but it takes me about 10 to um, 15 minutes, depending on traffic. Of course, the youth farm is actually a gated facility. So I have the privilege and the luxury of having access to the code. So often on Sundays or um, times when I just want to get away because it's absolutely beautiful out there. I just ride out and I sit under one of the pavilions and just enjoy nature. And I I just look forward to everyone in DeKalb County and and even those that come in having that same opportunity. When we started this conversation and you talked about being, as you call it, from L.A., lower Alabama and your love for agriculture, you I have a feeling this is really near and dear to you. It, it is. Uh, people are honestly near and dear to me. Um, you know, if we have, have a real conversation, you know, I'm a newly elected individual. I, I didn't come from institutionalized government. I'm not a career politician. And uh, the things that I do, it was a response in my presence to the need for change within the community. So everything that I've undertaken Uh, since 2019, walking into office, it's all been very personal because it's really time in in our communities that we see change. Um, So I think it's a good thing to have outsiders, uh, people who come from corporate America, people who think differently, because, you know, as we thought through the concept for the youth farm, through the sale of the products, um, the children actually develop what's called hood dressings. Um, and they have a hood ranch. They and literally they use the herbs because this this particular garden it's good. Well, the the youth farm itself will have uh, a herb garden. We have entire walls of edible foods, um, everything from your berries and, and down the line to an actual amphitheater uh, that hold, that seats two hundred and seventy five individuals. So entire classes can come out for a day 
and sit in nature and actually have instruction. So all of this is very near and dear to me. Um, to me, if you know anyone that, that participates in government or most anything that's meaningful, you should have something you can look back and say, I made a contribution. And, and this is just one of those. DeKalb County Commissioner Lorraine Cochran Johnson, thank you so much for taking the time. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you. it for this edition of Closer Look. A reminder to send us your feedback on all the conversations and features you hear on the program. Just send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's program, it's always online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcasts. Subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.